Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. We're moving into a series that we're calling Real Love, and today I wanted to start that off by focusing on a particular quality of what real love is that God expresses. As we get into that, uh, I was thinking of a conversation I I had with a good friend of mine here at the church, actually, who has a very unique job. Um, She is involved with a music company. They they produce paper music of classical pieces and things of this nature, and that also includes individual parts for the individual instruments that are copied off of the main part, which you might call the piece or the score. But as these parts are copied, even from computers at times, um, errors actually are introduced into these parts. And so one of her job and her responsibilities of her job is to look through these parts and identify the errors and correct them, which is a really, and to me, it's an intriguing thing that you're preserving the integrity of this music. And so much so that I thought about it, and I thought, how much has this actually creeped into our history? And so I looked this up, and believe it or not, Beethoven... Right, one of the most well-known uh, classical composers of all time. Who doesn't know the beginning of his masterpiece, the Fifth Symphony? Dun 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 dun. Right. Turns out there are several dozen, at least, errors that have crept into even the score or the piece, uh, that piece itself, the Fifth Symphony. Think about that. So perhaps we've been hearing those notes and they're completely wrong all this time. I don't know. They probably got those right. They have a pretty good idea that those, those four notes are probably correct. But there are actually people that go through um, current copies of pieces of music of Beethoven and so forth, and, and they discover the errors when comparing them back to the original writings that the composer you know, the master of this masterpiece made. They discover the errors and they figure out what needs to be corrected. I just found that very interesting. And you know, God is not very different from that. God is a master. He has a masterpiece. He has a symphony, in fact, with many parts, many more parts than any classical composer has ever written. And each of those parts, he knows how they're written to be. He's, he's intimate with his masterpiece, much like Beethoven would have been. If you ever study the amount of labor and time that Beethoven put into the Fifth Symphony, you would be shocked in order to get it just right. So God loves his masterpiece, made it the way it was intended, and he he sees it for what it is. Because I'm caught that if Beethoven today looked at those copies of his piece, he would immediately know where the errors are. He would identify them right away and correct them that quick because he knows his masterpiece. He knows exactly how it's meant to be. He would see it, he would be intimate and care about it, he would even know what to do to transform it and make it like he originally intended. And that is not unlike God. I want to take you to today, as the time we have together, we're just going to let Scripture speak for itself. We want to look at two moments in which a master approached his masterpiece. 
Two different kinds, two different styles completely and two different places of life and saw what was there and knew what needed to be transformed and brought his love to the situation. First one is in Luke chapter 19 and we see this statement. We see that Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. There was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector in the region, and he had become very rich. Now, let's first talk about the region that they're in. Jericho was in a region known as Judea. You can kind of see that red circle around an area that is near, if you notice, the kingdom of Judah. And what you have there is Jerusalem, which would have been their capital city. That's where what you just saw, the western wall, all of that around there, that's in Jerusalem, the capital city. And very near there, just off the kingdom of Judah actually, is the this town of Jericho. And that's where Jesus would have been. This area was surrounded with and immersed with the people of God. So they were with their peeps. Okay, These, they, were, they were with their crew. Comfortable place, people that know their customs, know their faith, know their lifestyle and practices. That's the comfortable area, basically, that they're, they're in in this moment of time. Zacchaeus, however, might have had a little bit of a different feeling, a little bit of a different rep. Because if you notice in the verses we read, we're told he was a chief tax collector. Now, a chief tax collector... If you want to understand how the people felt about him in that day, I just have a question for you. By show of hands, how many people love the IRS? Why am I not seeing any hands? I thought there'd be plenty. They're pretty self-explanatory, right? It's not something we like to do is pay taxes. We don't like the tax man. It's not our best friend. If anybody's involved in taxes here, my condolences to you. I know you're just doing your job. So was Zacchaeus, but Zacchaeus had another twist, though. He was a chief tax collector, and what that meant was not only was he joined with Rome in collecting taxes and sort of the people saw him, therefore, as against them, but a chief tax collector was able to charge over and above what was owed on the tax, and if he did, that extra amount that he charged, he got to keep. You wonder why the scripture tells us he had become very rich. This is why. And so all this was going on, you can pretty much surmise that he had, and you will see in a minute, that he had abused his authority, abused his position. He had found out how to color around the lines in order to get ahead. And so this person was in the midst of an area that probably didn't care much about him, and, and he himself understood that there was some, some ways in which he had compromised in order for his own self-centered gain. Ironically, his name Zacchaeus means pure one. <laughs> Not really, uh, not really mapping to the person we're dealing with here. But he might have looked that way on the outside. To most average person, he might have looked like he was exactly as uh, he, you know, he should be, well-to-do. But Zacchaeus, though he was in this financial comfort, he was not trusting in that. And so he, he tried to get a look at Jesus, we're told. And he was too short to see over the crowd. Interesting. I mean, he literally couldn't measure up. I don't mean that as a joke. I mean, he quite literally didn't measure up. And so he was struggling to see Jesus. He knew Jesus had something he needed. And he couldn't see him. He couldn't engage with him. So he did something interesting. We're told he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road. Not to eat figs. He didn't care. There was something else that he was hungry for. And he climbed this because Jesus was going to pass that way. So he kind of got ahead. 
Now, I don't know, maybe sometimes you are like Zacchaeus, you feel overlooked in life, you feel like you don't add up, you feel like you've compromised. I don't know where you're at, but I can tell you this, Zacchaeus did something we should take note of. He changed his perspective. He didn't just stay with the norm. He didn't just keep things rolling as is, doing the same stuff and expecting different results. He changed the perspective. He even went out of his way to meet with God, to even get a glimpse at Jesus. Do we go out of our way to meet with Jesus? I recently read a statistic that um, out of the people of faith who, who are Bible-devoted d- followers, or at least they profess, turns out 11% of them read the Bible on a daily basis. Only 11%. That means almost 90%, 9 out of 10, do not touch their Bible on a daily basis. Prayer fared a little better than that, but you know, frankly, if we're kind of trying to fill our lives, even with things like prayer or gathering or corporate worship, but, but the word isn't in there, um, we're missing a significant piece of what God left in order to do his work in our hearts. And so are we going out of our way to meet with God? That's an important question. So Zacchaeus does this. He goes out of his way. He takes a new perspective. He takes radical action to to be able to just get a glimpse of Jesus. And then we get this. When Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus. He sees him. And he called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Jesus sees him. He notices him. He notices him alone. Out of everybody there, he notices this tax collector. And he calls him by name. By the way, do you know that you're not just one of 8 billion people? Do you know you're not just part of a statistic, whether it's the 11% who read or the 89% who don't, or some other statistic I could quote to you? That's not all of who you are out in the crowd. God knows the very hairs on your head and numbers them. This is who you are because you're a masterpiece, though there are errors. But he wants to deal with all of that. And Jesus, Jesus wants us to come to him. He wants us, even in our errors, even in our sins, even in our drawbacks, even in the stuff we shade around the lines or try to bury, nevertheless, he wants us to look to him. He wants us to come to him. And he wants us with him. That's what we see here. He looked at Zacchaeus and said, come, come to me. And I think that our approach to God has to be on that basis, that we understand the intimacy even beneath what you might call the things of us that get in the way, or maybe even the, 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 the legalistic or procedural ways in which we approach him. You know, it's great to gather like this in corporate worship. That's wonderful. But do we know that God wants to have an intimate connection with each and every one of us? And do we approach that? Even when we do our, our, our Bible reading, do you know, there's a way in which we can approach that, and we're just checking off the box, Right? Hey, I heard in church I'm one of the 89%. I better become one of the, you know, one of the 11%, right? I, I got to become one of the 11% now. Uh, well, that's, is that our motivation? I, I, I recently heard from a girl. I think she just, she just nailed it. I was at Cornerstone University. I was at a chapel service with my daughter. She's entertaining the, the school as a place of college. And there was a girl there named India who gave her testimony during the chapel service. And she said this. She was speaking on the fear of the Lord. Interesting subject. But she brought a great perspective into this. She said, when you fear the Lord in the sense that he's some kind of terrifying God just out to get you, that that just leads to emptiness. And actually, she says, 
Really, that's you-centered. Think about that. Great insight. That's you-centered because you're trying to be perfect enough to live up. That's where your focus is. Instead, she said, I, I, tr- I chose to allow him to reveal his character to me. I asked him to do that. So I began to read the scripture in a way where I consciously tried to put God at the center rather than me. Rather than reading the Bible as a self-help book, I read it to learn more about who God was. And that's when everything changed. That's a great statement. Are we at the center of all that we're doing? Even the stuff that we're trying to do to impress God? You know, Zacchaeus might have been impressive to some people. Some people might have even said, you, congratulations, Zacchaeus, you have favor with God. Look at all that you have. But he knew something was missing. And he knew he needed to take a different approach to meet with God and look to God as the center of his world. And that's when God called him forward. Quick, Jesus says, Zacchaeus, come to me. I'm going to come to you. I want to come to you today. I'm going to be a guest in your home. When Jesus calls, you move. (laughs) That's what I take out of that. When we're in tune and we're seeking him and he calls, move quickly. Don't delay. Don't walk out of here today and say, you know, I really don't want to be a part of that 89%. I really shouldn't be. And then do nothing about it. Move on it. Go find time for God. Carve it out. Go up the tree, if you will. You know, there probably should have been more than one person on that tree that day. If they were surrounded by 30, 40 people, there probably should have been 30 or 40 in that tree. But many of those weren't taking that kind of action. Only Zacchaeus did that. And Jesus comes to his home, probably was a big home, probably had lots of stuff, but he was still empty. He needed Jesus to fill what the stuff can't. You know, I can promise you, you can seek the answers in the stuff of life. We can seek it in all the material stuff. And we may just, in fact, get it. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with providing and having provision. Certainly God brings that too. But if that is our goal and that is our thought process daily, while he slips by the wayside and we just let him walk by in the crowd, then we're really not measuring up and maybe we're missing something. And it's going to leave us empty. It's interesting that this is Zacchaeus' reaction. So now he finds himself this one person that, that Jesus calls out to. He's now got a guest in his home. I'm just curious, uh, if Jesus was coming to your house today to fellowship with you and spend some time, I'm going to be interested in that one. And you know what's funny? I get mixed reactions on this. I know why. Somebody told me after the first service, they said, you know, when you ask that question, I'm wondering, is God coming for me today? Because I got more to do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not ready. This is, I don't want this to be my last day. That's not what I mean. I'm talking about if he came to just spend time in fellowship with you, do you want him there? Probably more than the IRS agent, eh? And that's where Zacchaeus found himself. Some intimate, personal time with God. By the way, that's available to us every day. Every day. But I think of a man named Oscar Wilde a long time ago who said, you know, the reason we don't appreciate sunsets is because we don't have to pay for them. We forget about the things that are just common and there for us, accessible every moment. Intimacy with God is accessible every moment. Zacchaeus had that that benefit, but the people, were told, were displeased. They said, he has gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner. They're just grumbling off in the corner. What's up with this guy? Tax collector, doing all this stuff, and he shows up, and then he's going to get his attention? What kind of a prophet is this? 
He's a sinner. Doesn't, that, doesn't he know that? It's such an interesting moment. Because if we look one chapter prior to this, Luke tells us a story that most of us are familiar with. It's a story in which uh, two people are standing there. One is a Pharisee, teacher of the law, a religious leader, religious person. And the other one is a tax collector. And it's in that moment that this, this religious person looks and says, you know, Lord, I'm glad I'm not like that guy. You know, I do it all right. I, I, I keep the law. I know the, I know the Bible. I, you know, I do my, I'm the 11%. I'm good. Meanwhile, the tax collector's over there saying, Lord, <laughs> I'm not good, and I know I'm not good. I know the emptiness in my soul. I've hit it for most people, but I know it. The things they don't like me for, that's one thing, but I know the things I don't like me for, and I know I need you. Will you have mercy on me because I'm a sinner? And who did Jesus tell us went home in a right relationship with God? Was it the Pharisee, the religious person? No, it was the tax collector. Jesus tells that story. And now here we are just a little bit of time later and it's being lived out by the very people. You know, that should be a serious challenge to us about ever, ever being in a position of self-righteousness, of looking at somebody and thinking because they don't have it all together or because they have something we don't, frankly, or because they are compromised in some way that therefore it places our heart in a position where, frankly, we feel that we're better than them. It's a dangerous position to be in. And there's so many times Jesus dealt with this to, to prove that point. Think of the prodigal son and the older brother. We don't have time to go into it, but go read that story. And you'll see the problem of the older brother. And you'll see we're truly who was the righteous one in the situation, who was the one in right relationship with their father and in place of intimacy because of the difference between the two. And this comes into to real life. I was, I was recently speaking to a friend of mine who actually served and was in leadership at, at a church out of the area. But, and he went through a, a period of time where he had a, a disagreement with somebody else who was involved in leadership. And, and this person basically took on a, a, a mission to basically knock this person out, to just take them out. And a lot of what was done was underhanded, and it, it left them very wounded. And they were sharing this in a very personal moment. And I know the person well enough to know that they're not really spinning this. I mean, this was something that, uh, that legitimately had happened to them. And it was, it was a reminder to me that uh, we, when, we, when we get into that place where we're uncomfortable with what we see, when we're challenged... Something might challenge our authority. Something might challenge our, our, our position. Something might challenge our spirituality. Something that we see in someone, we immediately take that, that position of self-righteousness, even to the point of wishing that person ill will. Are we not the Pharisee in that moment? Are we forgetting that maybe we truly are more like Zacchaeus than we, we want to admit? And then he made a statement I won't forget, my friend. It's something that he had learned through the period because he said, I, I tried to plug into God and try to understand what I needed to learn. See, I love that. He owned his 10%, just like Zacchaeus owned his 10% in this whole thing. We're going to, you know, as, as we'll see in a moment. And he said, uh, 
He said, you know, I realized something in that path that I myself was doing a lot of what I was doing and serving just for the serving's sake. And he said this statement. He said, I realized there's a difference between pursuit of study and a pursuit of Jesus. And I think that's something worth remembering. There is a difference. And so when we go to that Bible, when we read, or we go and carve out that time today to pray, remember that there can be a difference between just checking the boxes but keeping that in a sense, self-righteous heart, and then a place of turning to Jesus. I, be, I really believe the line between these. I, I can't tell it for you. You can't tell it for me. But I do believe it's the, it's the line in the heart between self-righteousness and brokenness. I really believe that, that that line is in there somewhere, and we have to decide where we're going to fall with that. And that's true of Christians, and frankly, it's true of non-Christians. And my non-Christian friends out there who don't yet follow Jesus, I'll just put it out to you. No matter who you are, God knows Self-righteousness. He knows hypocrisy. He knows these things. Whether we acknowledge him or not, he sees us. He sees the, the errors that need to be corrected. He knows this. But largely, Jesus is telling this to people who do claim to know him and saying, will, will we be ones like him willing to reach across the aisle? And that can have many different meanings. But will we reach across to somebody who we think is on the opposite side and will we seek to bless them? Will we seek their greater good? Will we have a heart that desires for that? Jesus called Zacchaeus down alone. So Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor Lord. And if I've cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. He's so caught with the moment that Jesus sees him that it changes something and it produces something real. See, he owned his 10% and this this is the hallmark of what it means to really have faith. We have a word for this called repentance. And sadly, I think it's a word that's, that's forgotten a lot nowadays. We don't acknowledge it much. And repentance always has to precede what comes after it that we're going to talk about in a moment that Jesus brings up. But repentance has to do with action. Zacchaeus took action on what he professed. And that's what brings in this word faith. What does it mean to have faith in God, to trust in God? There's three levels of that word that, that throughout the, the, the millennia the church has realized, throughout the, the, the centuries and the several millennia, a couple millennia. And that, the three levels of, of faith you could define are like this. The first level means to hear something. It's a fancy word they use for it, notitia. I mean, like to take note of something. You, you take note of it. You hear it. That's one level of faith. But then the second level of faith is a fancy word they use, ascensus, which means basically to assent to something. I assent to something means I agree with it. I, understand, I intellectually agree with that. So you can hear something and you can agree with something, just like I, if somebody were to come to me and say, you know, Hey, uh, you said you haven't been feeling well lately. Whatever. Do you, have you considered maybe you should eat better and exercise? I've been kind of watching things with you. And I say, so I hear that, right? I hear it. I understand it. And then I might say back to them, okay, you know, that's a good point. You're right. I should eat better and exercise. I've now assented to that, but that's not faith. Faith is when I actually go and I eat better and exercise. When I take action on it, then I prove I've trusted what I heard and understood and assented to. And that is the level of faith that Zacchaeus shows here. 
He took action on the trust he had in the Lord to change what he needed to be changed in him. And it's on that action that Jesus responds and says, salvation has come to this home, to your home today. For this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. What does that mean? Well, go read the story of Abraham. We can't spend time on it now, but basically Abraham was the example of faith. He trusted God. He trusted God would make him right. He couldn't do it on his own. It's really not about all the stuff Zacchaeus is going to do now. That's not what makes him right with God. It's his trust in God that makes him right. Abraham trusted God, but then he took action on that later, showing that his trust and his faith was genuine. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. Zacchaeus, you've demonstrated that same thing, and salvation has come to you. And then through this faith demonstrating itself to be real, Jesus says, for the Son of Man, that's a term that he often used for himself. We can't go into that now. But for the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. Even the well-to-do, even the well-put-together, the ones who look good, the ones who everyone else thinks got it all together, even they have an emptiness and a need. And Jesus reaches them and he saves them because he sees them. But he doesn't end there. That was one masterpiece that he brought some correction and transformation to, but there are others that Jesus has. And so from that moment, we go to another, and we see this also in the Gospel of Luke. We see a moment where it says that Jesus and his disciples, they arrived in the region of the Gerasenes, we're told, across the lake from Galilee. As Jesus was climbing out of the boat, a man who was possessed by demons came out to meet him. For a long time, he had been homeless and naked, totally opposite Zacchaeus, living in a cemetery outside the town. Now, where are we at here? Let's take a look at the map, because before, we were way down on the south side in this area that all the people of God were familiar with. Well, now Jesus goes, and you can see that other uh, circle up at the top there, up by a body of water, that is the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus has gone up into that area onto the east side of it, as you see, to an area that's known as the Gerasenes. Now, what's interesting about that area is it's completely opposite the area that they just came from. This is Gentile territory now, not territory of the people of God. That's fact why you see later in the story there's people there herding pigs. Pigs was not something that uh, uh, the people of God ate. They didn't eat pork and things like this. But we see that here. They're in a totally different area now. Opposite side, end of the tracks, you know, other side of the tracks, and all of this. Um, but there's, there's also a, a history here. So it's not just an unfamiliar area. In fact, let me back up in a minute and say, just north of where you see that area is, was a town known as Caesarea Philippi, which we just heard about. And that town was, was known for its devotion, as we heard, to a Greek god named Pan. The, the, the god Pan represented and was worshipped because he was the god of carnality and passion and chaos. And it might start to sound like I'm describing our world today. Because today it seems to be ever increasing that we think the answers are going to be found in passion and desires run amok. And what we seem to be seeing is as we go after these things, more and more chaos is entering in. But we'll get back to that. And so imagine, though, that Jesus' disciples going into that area... This is completely foreign to them. And not only that, but the area had a history that was painful to them. 
Because you'll see that that area there was, was near a kingdom uh, known as Aram or Damascus. You can kind of see that there. That kingdom eventually at one point was overtaken by a, a nation called Assyria. You can kind of see that way up in the upper right, the Assyrian Empire. They came in and they took over that area and they joined forces and they systematically came in to the nation of the kingdom of Israel, you see in the blue there, and they wiped the area out. They enslaved the people and they put them in chains. They made them servants. And not only that, they took a lot of these people and they... And they they made them compromise and join with their culture and they intermarried with them in a way that wiped out their customs and their culture completely. And it produced a, a somewhat compromised people group that we'll actually look at a little bit more closely next week. So this is the area that Jesus tells his closest friends, let's go to. Try to think about an area that you might not want to go to today. Maybe high crime, maybe, maybe rampant drugs, maybe other things going on. And Jesus is saying, let's go. Let's go right in the middle of this. Maybe there's people there that betrayed you, and yeah, let's go right into that, in the middle of that. Right, who's signing up for that? Anybody? Not interested? Okay. That's where they found themselves, and they meet this man. Jesus goes out of his way, though, to meet people and bring peace out of chaos, because right before this, we see, you know what happened? Jesus crossed over that Sea of Galilee, and he calmed a chaotic storm. And he did that to reach this man. So Jesus calms the chaos so that he can show up in an area of chaos, dedicated to a God of chaos, to meet a man caught in spiritual chaos so he can calm another storm. And he walks up to this man. We can talk all day about possession. Is it real or not? You know, I, I'd refer you. I, I, it doesn't happen as much today. We heard last week even about how Jesus crushed the head of the principalities and powers. There's a lot of understanding from the scripture to say it's not as rampant as it was after Jesus dealt a triumphant victory with it, uh, to it over the cross. But is it still out there? Sure. I mean, uh, Dr. Richard Gallagher is a board-certified psychiatrist. He's a director of clinical psychiatry at a New York medical college and. He's not a Christian. He's been brought in by the church and has seen cases that it's going to be hard-pressed to explain apart from something spiritual going on to these people. But that's not really the central point here. The central point here is this guy is severely oppressed. Think about this for a moment. Take that word, oppression. If the goal in life is what the Hebrews would call shalom, that word means peace. It means your spirit being in harmony with God and with your mind and your body, all of it coherent and at peace together. If that's the goal of life, then are we there today? He was, clearly wasn't there. And I wonder how much of him we actually do share. Oppression can be a, a, a mental pressure to reject our creator, to reject the master of the masterpiece, to have no fixed point anymore where we all can fix on him and what he means for us to be as human beings. The one who said, love one another, to, to cast that off and have power over one another, to completely contradict who he is at his core. Doesn't that, does that not lead into spiritual oppression, to, to dis, a descent into chaos and, and madness? Let me, let me give you a word. The word is autonomy. It's a big word today. People want to be autonomous. That means me, myself, and I. The word literally means autonomous. It means no law, without law. It means I don't want anyone telling me what to do. I don't need some pesky God doing the same. 
I define my way. I am the master of my direction and destiny. Now think about that. That is increasingly becoming every individual's view today. If everyone has that view, and so each and every person has said, there is no creator, we've, got, we've, we've dealt away with our beginning point, the master who made us all, the creator. If we deal that away and there's no beginning point, do you know what that word is? Anarche. That word means no beginning. Anarche. Anarchy. That's where it leads to spiritual and personal and emotional anarchy. That's where this man found himself, in an area of autonomous passion, desire, and autonomy. And so Jesus goes out of, out of his way, out of the comfort zone to reach this difficult one. I, I just wonder sometimes how far we're willing to go to reach the maybe not just the well-to-dos, but the ne'er-do-wells like this. Anyway, Jesus, as soon as he saw Jesus, he shrieked and fell down in front of him. And he screamed, why are you interfering with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Please, I beg you, don't torment me. That is the spirit speaking through him that, that has control. For Jesus had already commanded the evil spirit to come out of him. When, he, when had he done that? See, this is what I was saying. Jesus had already saw him. It wasn't this guy who saw Jesus first. Jesus already saw him. On the way over, he already started this conversation. And he was already sparring with this spiritual oppression. And Jesus has authority, and we should remember that. He has authority over the spiritual oppression in our lives. He has authority over the spiritual oppression, over the mental anguish, over the difficulties, over our own weaknesses. He has authority And so Jesus steps into the moment and he sends the spirit called Legion out. We see them enter into the herd of pigs and they pull, literally pull a Thelma and Louise and they go right over the, anybody remember that movie? They go right over the cliff at the end, gone, done. And so when the herdsmen saw it, we see they fled to the nearby towns and they spread the news everywhere. People rushed out to see what had happened. A crowd soon gathered around Jesus and they saw the man freed. He was sitting at Jesus' feet. He was fully clothed. He was perfectly sane. And here's what's interesting. They were afraid. God can make such a tremendous difference when he begins to point us away from our chaotic feelings and back to the design that he means to be fundamental to our identity because he's the master and he knows his masterpiece and he knows what needs to change. And so when he's pointing us that way, something goes right. We see that here. The madman is freed, and yet the people of the region are chained now. What an interesting thing. Because they're afraid of what God can do. Are, are we sometimes afraid of what God can change in our lives? Are there things we're a little too familiar with? And we fear losing those things? Maybe they're things that are not really that good for us, but they've become our identity because we've been wrapped up with them so long. Will we take the difficult step? to allow Jesus in and give him the authority because we trust him. And so we see all the people in the region beg Jesus to go away and leave them alone. So Jesus returned to the boat and left and crossed back to the other side of the lake. You know, I find it interesting how God is often a, a gentleman. He will not force himself into our situation. But I can guarantee you that when he left that day, there was one person free and there were many others in chains. 
And so we have to ask ourselves again if we open up to what Jesus wants to do in our lives. The man who had been freed from the demons begged to go with him. They're begging him to leave. This man is begging to go with him. But Jesus had something else for him to do. He sent him home saying, no, go back to your family. Tell them everything God has done for you. So he went all through the town proclaiming the great things Jesus had done for him. He was begging to be with Jesus. But Jesus says, you know something? I saw you. And as the worship team comes out here, we're going to wrap this up with a couple final thoughts. Because when Jesus sees us and he transforms something in us, he oftentimes says, I, I saw you. Now you go and see someone else. You go and bring that forward and bring that hope. And that's what this man did. He went back to the people he knew and he brought that forward, that hope and that freedom and that love. Jesus was in two completely different areas of their land, opposite ends, two completely opposite people. One was well-to-do. Everybody thought he had it all together. But he knew there was an emptiness in there. One was this never-to-do-well person who was falling apart at the seams. He also had a need, didn't he? And I don't know where we find ourselves. I mean, maybe we find ourselves on one of those extremes, one of those poles, barely holding it together. Or looking around thinking everybody thinks we got it together, but we really don't. There's this cry, quiet cry of desperation coming out. Wherever we find ourselves, maybe somewhere in between. But the master knows his masterpiece. He knows exactly where the errors are. He knows exactly what needs to be transformed to make us the way he intended to bring that shalom, to bring a sonorous melody that brings beauty and completion to all who hear it. He knows how to do that. He's waiting. He's knocking. He never kicks the door down. But if we open it, he will come in. But rest assured, even if you're still finding yourself struggling there, even if he hasn't yet shown up on the soil, you haven't had the opportunity yet to even try to climb the tree because you're not sure if he sees you. You're, you're the, you're the madman over there on the side, not even knowing somebody's in a boat already approaching. Even then, he sees you. He already sees you. And he is prepared to transform whatever situation we find ourselves in. Because that's what real love does. Just like that with two scriptures that just came to me as we were singing. The first one is when God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And the second one that kind of ties to it is this. When he said, see and look, I've engraved you on the palms of my hands.
Let's never forget what the cross demonstrated. That he sees us. That it's a real love that sees and as we'll talk about next week, not only sees us, but seeks us every day. Father, I pray that each of us could go away from this place with a simple trusting faith, a faith that would go into action. But all of that bound up because we trust you. We know your heart, that you see us, God. You know what to change. You know what to transform. You know your masterpiece. So we yield to your hands, those same marked hands. Change us today as you see fit. Make us more like you. In Jesus' name we pray.